Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. This is Ryan Frederick with AWH, and this is Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about product and building products. And my guest today is Matt Pasternak, Director of Product for Aware, parentheses, formerly Wiretap, and parentheses. How long do we have to do the formerly Wiretap, or have we jumped that, that threshold at it's this a, point? It's a great question, and probably one for our, our head of marketing, Betsy. So maybe your next podcast around product marketing, you could, you could chat with Betsy around that one. Yes, and, and we know that we don't want to upset Betsy because... She has, uh, as I've teased her about, she's been described to me as an assassin. Um, so <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. We may not, we may not survive, you know, any more commentary about the brand and marketing um, and live to live to tell about. <laughs> so thank you for joining me. Absolutely. As uh, you think about your journey into product, you've been at this for for a while now, even mm-hmm. though you're, you know you're you're significantly younger than I am, obviously. As you think about that journey, what drew you to product as as a discipline and as a career, and ultimately, why did this space make sense for you? Yeah, I think I think it goes goes back. Looking back, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that you look back and you realize, yeah, this is totally meant to be with with my skill set, even down into middle school, high school. Um, but I, I think really what drew me to it as a, as a discipline, as you know, that's what I'm going after. I think when I realized that that product is the is the discipline where you have your hand in every asset, or I guess I should say you have your hand in every facet of the business. And there are challenges that of, of just even understanding these ambiguous problems that are, that are out there. Uh, they don't have clear answers. You have to understand, you have to ask. And then kind of going back to having a hand in, in every area of the business, you, you also have to be someone that can lead without really, or I should say influence without authority. And product never really has authority to tell other departments what they're doing, but they need to influence them. They need to gain stakeholder alignment. And, and all of those things, I think having you know my own agency before, having been at uh, three Startups, um, seen a lot from the business perspective. I love the mix of business and, and tech and, and being that more or less translator um, for the CEO's vision. So that's what drew me, I think. And, you know, I'm, I'm in it and it feels, you know, more right than anything I've, I've ever done. And when you, when you had your own agency and you were advising clients and and working with them in, in a in a you know in a professional services manner yeah. versus inside of a company working yeah. on on a specific problem and a and a specific sort of product to solve that problem what did having the service firm and the agency sort of teach you about product or and how did that make you a better product manager at the startups that you've now been a part of yeah i think i think it had a big influence um on both you know things i should be doing things i i didn't like from the service side um that that i drew to love about product uh so breaking that down i think you know when i had my own agency it was it was as small as myself and it was big as five or six people at a at a small uh, full service design agency that that i had you know, I think learning to listen to customers, uh, delivering value in, in the quickest way possible is how you how you make your revenue as a service agency. There's only so many hours in a day. So what we went to is value-based pricing. I think that, that taught me that the quicker you achieve uh, value for your customer, uh, it doesn't matter how long it takes you. So I think that's where my startup gears started was if I can do this in half the time and get the same, get, deliver the same amount of value to, to customers, you know, that's a win, a win for both both sides. And I think that translates very well to startup where time is money and you need to be delivering quickly. You need to be delivering quality and you don't have all the money in the world. So I think translating that, that uh, efficiencies uh, into product is uh, at a startup specifically is something I was able to, to take away from my, the service side. The things that I learned I didn't like was there were so many hours in a day um, and also, you, you never saw the end output. You would, you would help a customer, you would help a client, unless they were a long-standing client, you would be done with the project. 
But what did that business do? Did they make more sales because of what you did from a design perspective or even a, a web app perspective or packaging in Apple stores? You just never saw the, the end. It was, it was a, a one and done sometimes. And I think what I loved, and I always told my house I would never be, a, or I always told myself I would never be uh, at an in-house you know, company. And I would also always be my own boss. And that was the young, immature <laughs> right. um, mind of Matt that Pasternak. Feels like, that in, feels in like college. the rebellious, right? Yeah, you know, it just uh, felt like I didn't have control over, you know, my, my own, uh, my value, right? I could control my value when I had my own agency or was consulting, right? The hours I put in meant how much, you know, I was either making or being fulfilled or whatever it may be. But I, that's where I think the startup was a perfect mix. And what I loved about it was you're owning something from, from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're iterating on something constantly. You're, you're constantly making it better, and, and you have that focus. So I've learned to, to really enjoy that aspect of, of startups and, and, and really product in general. And I think that's really what differentiates product you know, from any of these other titles in the industry or, or project managers and things like that. I know you've had previous guests where you've broken that down to, you could probably make a whole show on that, Right um, is, is owning that, that uh, iterative process on, on a software. So when I've talked to people in the past in product, they you know, often feel like product is home for them and the place that they're supposed to be, even if it wasn't very strategic, mm-hmm. uh, because it feels like a, a maximization of, of, of a very diverse set of skills. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like that's probably true for you too, that you've got an interest in design, but you've also got an interest in, in, a, in a technical you know, solution to a problem. Yeah. So is it fair to say for you too, that being in product and, and being director of product at AwareNow is a maximization of a very diverse set of skills? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that goes back to, you know, looking at my past and even in college, I, I didn't even know what design was. You know, my background is in design and, and kind of morphed that into UX and product design. But I knew that design was never the end game for me. You know, I could have had a career in design and, and followed that career path. Uh, but I think what kept drawing me to this product uh, kind of description or, or discipline was the fact that you had you had your, your hands in engineering. I didn't need to know how to code. I never learned how to code, but I understood and had empathy for, for developers and, and the challenges that they hit. I understood the business aspect from you know, having my own agency and having to go get my own uh, customers and having to uh, you know, run my, um, my own reporting and invoicing and, and all the things that come with owning a small business. So I, I had that experience. And, and to be able to empathize with those parts of the organization now at a, at a growing startup, uh, know, close to, to 50 people, uh, that, that definitely is something that I draw from on a daily basis. So product itself, obviously, has, has become a bigger buzzword. Looking back, you know, I've probably been doing it for, for the last seven uh, years, uh, if not more. And I, I read recently this book, Product Leadership. It's a great book. After reading that, you know, getting through three to five chapters, you're reading it and you're like, absolutely, this is describing, you know, my background, you know, how I approach problems, how I approach people. And, uh, you know, just it, it became more and more validated, I feel like, it, it, every year of my career. Yeah, I think we've, most of us who have been building software products, were in the product discipline. We didn't necessarily know what to call it, mm-hmm. right? So at the beginning, it was mostly just development, right? We, we wrote code and stuff got built and the UX and the UI was terrible. And then we realized the value of design. And so then we went through this phase of design and development mm-hmm. where design did stuff, slid into the door to development, developers wrote code. And then there was there was still this sort of lack of collaboration and cohesion and coalescing right, yeah. around the product. Yep. And then, uh, and then Agile sort of came in, you know, more at an enterprise level that supposedly was this coalescing, right? And in true Agile form, right, you have this very small team of a designer, developer, and, you know, product owner, and, and maybe, a, maybe a tester. And that really never delivered on the promise of building better products either because right. just because you have a smaller team doesn't mean you're following the fundamental principles of building good products, right? right? You could just be iterating faster, building something that sucks. Yeah. And so as you think about product now and having been having done it for a while, 
even maybe not knowing what you know what the proper you know label was for it what are some principles that have developed for you that are just very foundational and sacred around building the best products yeah that's that's uh, loaded but i think i think it it boils down to at the end of the day you're you're ultimately solving problems you know b2c versus b2b you are solving a problem i think b2b which is the space we're in at aware I think I'm constantly pushing and, and practicing and, and, and touting uh, the really to validate assumptions, right? So always knowing the why before you, you go put pen to paper, whether you're a designer, whether you're an engineer, whether you're product writing requirements, uh, validating these assumptions. Because if you don't consistently validate assumptions, you can, you can get down rabbit holes really quickly. And I think there are great examples, especially at a startup, this is... Uh, more important than ever, because if you're not validating assumptions and you are going off of your own assumptions, you can take up engineering time, you can take up design time that is going to lead you to nothing, right? So making sure you understand your drivers and, and validating you know, assumptions about what you are building against those and with, with customer feedback and, and all those things, um, you know, it's, it's something that will if you stick to that, you'll continue to build good product and continue to have you know your product uh, talked well about. So let's give some people uh, context around sure. Aware and your products or, or your product or products. Yep. What problem do you solve? Who do you solve it for? And in what way do you you know approach solving it? Sure. Yeah. So we Aware uh, we help companies understand their their digital workplace and specifically uh, with the chapter win right now their their digital conversations and and so what I mean by understanding uh, their digital workplace so uh, when when they roll out a collaboration tool uh, a lot of us know about slack that are in the, the startup bubble or the product bubble but there there are big players that came from the enterprise down like Microsoft's Yammer uh, teams workplace by Facebook we integrate with these solutions Solutions. There's a lot of data that gets produced on a daily basis at, at a company uh, like uh, AstraZeneca, who's a customer, or a Keurig Dr. Pepper, or a Chevron that with these platforms. And the collaboration leaders that are responsible for, for rolling out these tools haven't really thought twice about the, um, the amount of data that's being produced on a daily basis that other stakeholders in their, in their company care about. Uh, the, they see that, that data as a risk not so much as a, as a productivity tool, but more of a risk to their organization, whether it's uh, having or not having control of that data. So how long does it stick around for? Not being able to protect that data, making sure it doesn't get into the wrong hands. Uh, you know, I use Slack. I've, I've made mistakes in Slack of posting things in, in, the wrong gener- in, in the wrong channel or using Workplace and posting something in, in the wrong group. And then also protecting people within that. So there's risk that's associated with with the digital workplace, but then there's also value. And this goes back to our, our CEO's vision, uh, Jeff Schumann, who was a collaboration leader at a, at a very large insurance company uh, in town. And he's, this was more along the lines of, of what he, where he wanted to take this company was, if we have our employee population collaborating uh, using, using these digital workplace technologies, what data can we derive from him that will give us a competitive advantage that we can we can have insight that we've never had before that we can understand the behavior the dna is the is the term that he used of our organization uh, to drive better business outcomes so really it's it's two-pronged and we break that down into two chapters right now we're solving (laughs) chapter one which is removing this risk so that these tools can be rolled out and then our chapter two which is really the vision of the company which is deriving insights and we're starting to scratch the surface on that so as you think about and apparently this is the point in in the recording where i choke and die <clears throat> and as darren knows who who records these sessions for us it happens once every time uh, because apparently i can't even ask questions for 60 minutes without um you know um, getting to the the uh, brink of of it being a fatality um which is um yeah, um, representative of the rest of my life, I guess. Um, so, so you think? Do about, you want to talk about that for the next? <clears throat> uh, I probably will just literally, you know, keel over and die if we actually talk about it too much. Um, it's interesting to think about the difference between building products for B two B and B two C. Yeah. And so, how do you see the the, the process being different? You are at Aware. 
you guys are B2B, you're building, you're building products for B2B customers, in some cases very large enterprises who are also using other B2B uh, products that you're extending, enhancing, you know, and, making, and making better use of. How do you see the primary differences between building B2B and B2C products? Yeah, and, and I've had, fortunately, I've had experience with, with building both. I, I started my product career, I would say, more in the B2C uh, space, uh, whether it was uh, soccer registration software, uh, all the way to what I did at another Columbus startup, InfoMotion, where we, we built uh, motion technology specifically around a smart sensor basketball. And that was a full B2C play. And we, we sold that online, uh, direct to consumer, learned a lot. Uh, about the the decisions that you have to make when bringing a product to market, uh, not only from a hardware standpoint, but but also a, a software to the consumer and iterating on that. Uh, and even there, we, we transferred into the B2B space um, and started to apply the technology at scale uh, at, at large car manufacturing. And so I think that's where I started to see there's this clear difference between the problems you're solving at, at B2C and, and B2B, not saying you know, one is more important than the other, but it was a clear shift of how do you prioritize your, your resources, how do you prioritize your roadmap, and how do you prioritize your decisions, uh, the inputs that, I guess, dictate your decisions, I think, becomes a very different game. Uh, I would argue that in B2B, you're, you're really listening, especially early days of startup, uh, you know, early stage startups, you're really having to listen to this qualitative feedback uh, and, and less on the quantitative feedback. It's, it's one thing if you have thousands of users tapping your app every day, opening your app, converting to your app every day from a B2C standpoint. You don't have that in, in B2B, especially B2B within the enterprise space. So I think it's it's that ability to to listen to the qualitative feedback. The signal beyond sales is is sometimes what I what I speak of internally. How do we listen to those and and how do we let those uh, prioritize? You know where we spend our time and, and energy. And how do you? You've got a customer success team mm-hmm. at Aware. How do you engage with customers? Both in during the sales process mm-hmm. and to be aware right of of the narrative that you're hearing from them, and then existing customers coming through like customer success. How do you in product interface with the other departments and customers? Given the fact that some of those requests are going to be made during the sales process, some of those are going to be made through customer success and support Mm -hmm. and then how do you sort of bring that together make sense of it and then coalesce it into something that ends up on the roadmap yeah and i i think this goes to the other kind of aspect sure there's b2b versus b2c but i think you also have to break down what stage of of a company are you at right it's it's one thing to be pre you know pre-seed or pre-product market fit and really still trying to find market fit and that answer would probably be different uh, if if we were you know five hundred million in revenue and uh, optimizing. So where we were uh, when I when I started at Aware uh, previously Wiretap, we had a product. We we maybe had a little bit of false signal with product market fit, um, and so we had to do a lot of listening to customers. And I, I literally sat in on I tried to sit on every sales call for for almost six months really listening for these repetitive patterns and 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 problems that were consistent across the board across industries right we have customers that are in in oil and gas we have customers that are have frontline workers uh, we have customers that are nonprofits in financial space so they're all over the board but there were consistent problems that were coming up time and time again and it was really listening to those signals that that weren't necessarily sales yet uh, to really help drive what are we building and define this this product market fit. So once we get customers, you know, then that's it's great, but they also then have a voice. And so to your question, how do you balance that? And I think it goes back to, you know, now being really in a, a step out of the product manager role and, and kind of head of product uh, and, and really interacting with Jeff and, and, and Greg and, and our other leadership team, uh, really understanding our objectives as a company. And aligning a lot of how do we make decisions based on that from the roadmap perspective. So, you know, if a customer requests something, we have to look at what are we optimizing for as a company right now. You know, we are still in growth mode. We are still building this this house that we need our customers to move into. 
focusing on this light fixture within our bathroom is, is not going to increase our, our revenue short term. We need to store that. We need to, we need to think about that. And, and we also need to understand, you know, is this, is this request from a customer, is it urgent is it, or is it important? And, and there's kind of a, a difference between the two. And I'll have to give a shout out to uh, our platform product manager. She sent me this article today that was right on with, with this exact analogy where you really have to filter when a customer asks you something. Is it, you know, everything's on fire, we need to stop and, and do it? Or is this something that is a, a nice to have, just feels like an urgent request, but in a week they're going to forget about it? And these little decisions, especially at a startup, you have to be very thoughtful about what you act on and what you don't, because everything you say yes to is a no to something else. Mm-hmm. And and the cost beyond um, not only, even if they're willing to pay money for it, I think you have to think about the ramifications of if we if we go pull uh, focus from from our core, whatever we're doing, that's costing us in other areas. And it's that role of a product manager and as the product team that they are the gatekeepers of that. They need to understand both sides of it. So long-winded answer to your question, um, but it's a balancing act. It's absolutely a balancing act where you're, you're getting constant questions from sales, customer success, customers. And the other aspect at a startup, you're getting, you're having to align stakeholders that are investors that are potential M&A, you know, suitors that are partners in the ecosystem. There's a lot of stakeholder balancing that that you have to do outside of the, you know, the norm that I think people think about where it's, you know, engineering and and the business. It's way more than that. Right. When we met a few weeks ago, we talked about how in B2B products, the UX is more of an imperative than the UI and not to, you know, denigrate, you know, the, the UI layer and, and mm-hmm. you know, design a role in, in any product. But in a B2B product, the sort of visual, you know, um, piece matters slightly less because a B2B product is, is often, um, making air quotes now, it's more of a jobs to be done kind of, mm-hmm. of situation, right? Where there is the workflow and someone's um, use of the product and actually being able to get a a function done faster, more efficiently, more effectively is more important than whether the UI is a, you know, sort of award-winning, right, visual, you know, polished, you know, version uh, of a product. Talk about that a little yeah. bit more, if you would, about why the UX is, is a little bit more of an imperative of a UI in a B2B product uh, implementation. Yeah, and this is coming from a, a designer, um, you know, by trade. And, and I, I, think, I think when you balance the two, it can be uh, a, a home run. But I think with, with B2B products, you, you are replacing a process, more or less, right? I think that's how you have to approach uh, B2B products is the business is only going to buy your product, or I, I guess I should say renew your product. It's one thing to get them to buy. It's another thing to get, get renewals. And, right. and they're only going to do that if you become part of their business process. And, and that is so important when you're building, when you're maintaining, when you're optimizing to, to understand. And so that's where I would say that, that the UX part of it, understanding the business problem, understanding how, how your product speeds up a certain process um, within their holistic process or workflow and how do you do that uh, is, is you know, more important than the UI. With that said, I do think by creating a, a very elegant solution, you can really differentiate, differentiate yourself in the B2B market. Uh, the, the software that, that some of these individuals at, at large organizations use have had no thought into the, to the UI and, and even sometimes the UX. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's hard to, you know, as a designer, I, I went through this process getting into B2B. It's, it's hard to get in that different mindset where maybe if you're in the B2C side of things for a while as, as a product designer or even a UI designer, you're used to optimizing a button color, right? Well, again, going back to where you're at as a, as a company, maybe you're at, at a company where optimization is, is your key objective for the year. We're not there yet, right? Changing a color button um, is not as important as making sure that this, this table is exportable for a business process. And so I think it's, it's really finding where these high-frequency uh, items in, in your product, focusing your attention on that and not getting caught up in, in the little things within the UI. Is it also a, more of a challenge to iterate quickly with B two B products? Um, because even though you have, so I think this is a this is a double edged sword mm-hmm. with B two B products. 
you have a captive audience, presumably, with users inside of a company that's now a customer. Mm -hmm. And presumably those users you know, are, are now required to use the product as, as part of their their workflow. But given the fact that you're operating inside of an environment where that company is also probably using lots of other products and there are you know rollouts and there's training and, and there's lots of things that happen in process and systems mm -hmm. inside of, of B2B companies that uh, sort of restrict the ability to maybe iterate quickly and, and deploy quickly and distribute quickly, where on the B2C side... You know, if you've got if you've got a consumer app, you know, on the web or on mobile or or you know, w whatever the case is, you, you can sort of iterate, you know, very quickly, and mm -hmm. then you you know you sort of deal with the ramifications of the feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, but in B two B, it seems iterating on B two B products is a little bit slower. And then, so how does that impact your ability to maybe enhance the product, the pace that you want to, given the fact that some of your customers might have system and process constraints. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know if it's so much it's slower. I think you just have to be thoughtful as as you iterate and and really understanding what what are you changing or what are you iterating on and have have there been workflows built around this process because when our customer success manager you know, onboards a customer, they are now baking that into their documentation. So when they onboard employees that they are using our product, this is part of it. And so they're taking screenshots. They're, they're saying that, you know, this is what you do. You have this, these five steps. Well, if you change one of those steps, it breaks their flow. So you just have to think about that and be thoughtful about it. We have built a full SaaS platform. Uh, it's, it's, it's an advantage to have that, right? We, we came from an on-prem enterprises, you know, I compare it to, you know, the wired telephone, uh, fun story. We were on our way back from family vacation. My son, who's six, we stop at a gas station and then there's a payphone. And he looks and says, "What? What is this?" And and that's where the enterprise is still there. And, um, and is that where you said that's where Superman changes? Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then he got it. Yes. Um, but I, I think that's that. It's it's a good reminder when you're in B two B and even in the enterprise. We started with an on premise product, and I know we're on a tangent here, but no, I it's think good. It's important for B two B and and in the enterprise. You have to you have to realize they they do move slow. So anything we do is is quick. First of all, but we are we are in the process and pretty much complete with going from an on-premise platform to a full SaaS. And that full SaaS platform allows us to, to do rapid iteration and, and allows us to you know, really scale this product to, to become uh, a platform. Now, on the, on the other side of that, there's, there's downsides, right? And, and one of those downsides is when we make a change for, for one, one feature, it's changing it for everybody. So how do we make sure that we're not breaking processes for, for companies that have in place? And again, that goes back to really listening to our customers, really understanding their problems, really understanding how they're working this into their workflow, even before and after they use our product, right? But what are they doing to get into our product? Why do they get into our product? What are they doing with the information we give them from our product? So just having a pulse with our customers, staying in front of them, staying in communication with our customers um, on, on a weekly, monthly basis is something that, that you know, we reinforce our, our product team to do, our, our marketing team to do, and, and even our engineers, we like to bring them into, into these meetings. So iterating quickly on, on B2B products is, is not so much a, a challenge. Uh, we can do it. it. It's just being thoughtful about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you have significant partnerships, and you mentioned them earlier when we were talking about mm -hmm. uh, where does and what problem you solve and, and who you solve it for. With workplace uh, by Facebook and and Yammer and Teams, how does that affect the way that you think about products and and how closely do you have to align and collaborate with those companies and their products? And what challenges does that create? Because if they change their product roadmap and they come up with something that that was unexpected, which I'm sure has already happened, and yep. it'll probably happen a thousand more times. How do you then deal with that and sort of incorporate that into your approach to the to the product and 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 aligning your roadmap with their roadmap and that whole sort of kettle of fish of adding value to an existing product that. that is kind of the mothership and you're there, you know, uh, making the mothership more operationally, yeah. you know, effective and valuable, but still 
having to you know react to something that somebody else is doing with their product right yeah so i think you know having having two partners uh like facebook and microsoft <laughs> um it's you know it, first of all it's it's amazing to say that that we were a startup uh with about 50 people um and have had microsoft and facebook as partners and they need us to unlock their largest customers in the world. So we are working with two of the largest tech companies in the world, enabling their technology for some of the largest organizations in the world. And, and so obviously there, there comes pressure with that. And, and each have their, their own um, tribes, so to speak, their own camps. And they each you know, have, have nuances within their platforms that we, we have to be careful of, of not building features that are specific to their platform, right? One, one thing that since we, we have plans to integrate with literally any digital conversation tool in the market, that's, that's our vision, we've built our new SaaS platform in a way that, that we are normalizing this data. And so we, we have full intention to connect with, with other platforms and do it quickly. And so we have to be careful we don't go build custom features that, that really only work with this, this feature from Workplace by Facebook or, or from Microsoft Teams. So we're having to do a lot of, of assessing, you know, when it comes to, to building features. But what we found by listening, again, kind of validating assumptions with, with, our, with our customers, that there are distinct problems that are across the board with, with any collaboration data set. And so since we normalize it, it's easy to do that. So you're, you're remaining fairly agnostic. Yeah. And you want to be a layer, right, mm-hmm. that, that is sort of operating above these base digital collaboration communication platforms yep. and not have a workplace by Facebook sort of specific integration and, and, and you know, a Yammer specific product, right? Yeah. You, you want to have a product that, that is as ubiquitous in solving the problem as possible yep. within lots of, of you know, sort of tentacles into all of these other digital yeah. collaboration platforms. Yep. I think we, we really, we, we have, you know, the integration, we, we integrate simply with these platforms and, but we want to remain agnostic. We want to be their, their centralized place for data governance of digital conversations and their centralized place for data insights. We're, we're finding, and this is an emerging market, and I think it's, it's one thing that gets me excited about what we're doing is we're in this space that is, is fragmented, even at these largest companies. They, they don't just have one way to chat anymore. They have, they have Skype, they have Teams, they have Slack, they have Workplace by Facebook, they have WeChat, and, and the list goes on. And they don't have one place that, you know, if, if Ryan gets put on a legal hold or they need to do an investigation into conversations that you had, they don't have a place that they can go pull up all your conversations across all your digital communication channels. So you can think of it like that. We, we want to remain agnostic. Uh, sure, each platform is going to have nuances, but we're trying to normalize those because there are consistent characteristics of this, of this data set. And, and that's, you know, we haven't really touched on it, but that's also where we're investing a lot in, in our data science and our behavioral intelligence team around this data set that really hasn't been focused on in in the industry so uh yeah that's that's a good way to put it and so it sounds like you guys are increasingly becoming more of a data and analytics product company right as much as probably now that's inside the wrapper of a SaaS company Mm -hmm. and a SaaS product but it sounds like many of the um much of the value add and much of your feature functionality footprint is going to be around how do you help a customer to take the data and the insights that's happening inside of their digital collaboration and communication tools and make sense of that? Yeah. So I think, you know, one thing when I, when I joined, uh, Jeff had this great vision. Our CEO had the great vision of what could we do with, with all the data living in enterprise communication. You know, that was kind of the line that, that we use as, as our vision setting. And when I joined the company, we have a, a great relationship, and I think this is where product and, and CEOs need to have this great relationship where it's take the reins, I'm showing you the vision, now translate the steps we need to execute to get there. And and so what, what became more and more clear was we have these two chapters at AWARE, and, and that first chapter is 
removing really the barriers to adoption of these platforms. Because without these platforms producing data, without these users using the platforms, there's no way we're going to have valuable insights for an organization. So it was kind of a first things first. But by breaking it up into those chapters, it was kind of clear internally, just as it was internally and externally, we could we could go to market with these kind of two solutions. What we found with that was we were selling into these collaboration leaders that we're saying, I, I need help. I have my legal guys coming after me, my my compliance team, you know, the chief compliance officer, she's at my door, she's asking, how am I solving for these, uh, for these items? And so when we're building this platform, we want to give these collaboration leaders a way to check these boxes. But then we're also saying, hey, we're also, we're also building this archive for your risk team to have risk and compliance needs. But we're going to make this archive useful for you and go beyond just just quantitative analytics, right? We're actually going to be doing behavior analysis. We're gonna we're gonna make you the hero inside your organization where you can go tell your CEO that, hey, or or your um, you know internal comms team, this is how we should be responding to our organization that just had X Y Z happen to it, you know, before it becomes part of the Wall Street Journal, and that's how the CEO finds out that there was uh, an internal you know, happening in, in, in their company. So they start to buy into this vision. They can get buy-in from security and compliance that, you know, we're, we're more or less providing this, this archiving solution of their data. But now we're starting to become an, an insight tool for them. And, and I, it's, it's a thoughtful approach to analytics. I, I use analytics in air quotes because what we knew two years ago when I started was we didn't want to just become another dashboard of graphs and, and insights. We wanted to be more than charts. We wanted to be more than just counting things. We wanted to understand, you know, are there segments of your organization, uh, not just that they're chatting more than in other segments, but is that a good thing or a bad thing? And that's where we're starting to add this qualitative insight, these, these qualitative actionable insights to our platform. And that's what's starting to gain ground because these are things that companies have never been able to measure before. And so it's, you know, when you, you get into a conversation with one of these leaders and you ask them, how, how are you measuring your company sentiment or engagement right now? It's, e- it's either by, well, we do an annual survey, you know, licking your fingers, sticking it up in the wind, seeing which way the wind's blowing. Uh, or it's, they literally say, well, it's, it's gut right now. And so, you know, that's kind of our next chapter that we're just starting to scratch the surface on. Gallup has no disrespect <laughs> to Gallup, but Gallup has made so much money over the years of of enterprises using them to do their annual sort of employee right team member level of engagement survey, which I think you know most companies and most team members now realize really has become you know mostly ineffectual, right? Yeah. Because if if it's like anything else, if you measure something at one point in time, yeah. right over the course of a year, yep. what you're getting is you're getting responses at that one point in time in the year, right. depending on when you ask, you know, for the information, yep. depending on where the company is at at that point, and of course, anyone individual, right? It could be very different if you ask the same survey the next day. Right. Right. Exactly. And, so, and asking a survey for somebody to fill out something that their boss might see, right? You start to get bias. And I think, you know, we're not, we're not in it right now to go replace these, these polls. We think they're important in the companies, but we want to, we want to supplement them on a, you know, um, a more or less, you know, a up-to-date sentiment of your company. And it's objective, right? We're, we're analyzing communication and and it's objective. It's authentic. It's authentic, right? Because this these is what's actually happening. Absolutely. In the digital, you know, collaboration absolutely. footprint of the company. And and if you're a CEO or or a leader within the company, and and you can understand, let's say you just went through a merger and acquisition, if you can understand that not just that this merger and acquisition is a trending topic within your digital communication or your digital workplace, if you can understand that this is a trending topic and it's trending negatively you're going to be able to react immediately and, and get ahead of maybe some of the assumptions that are starting to pop up. And, and, and so it's really starting to, we want to build tools that allow leaders to understand their organization so they can respond better, so their employees can be happier. And, and I think it's a big part of our, of our you know, brand evolution, right? We, we were Wiretap, I think. If you didn't know our company or how we got started, you would think we were this big brother security company. And, and it's, it's the exact opposite. We want to you know, give companies the, the, the control of this data, but we, we, we want them to really, it goes back to rewarding the employees, and we want them to be at a, at a better place to work. We, we eventually want to build products for the employees and, and things like that. So our grander vision is, is really understanding your, your organization's digital signature. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit 
you know, the balance of, of quantitative and, and qualitative, mm-hmm. right, in, in terms of the insights and sort of the data that's happening inside the digital collaboration tools. Same thing is true on product, right, mm-hmm. in that you have to balance, you know, the qualitative and quantitative. Sounds like you guys lean more qualitative than quantitative uh, in some of your user, you know, validation and, and research, how do you balance that? Because yeah. the, there is, um, there's still a great debate over what is the right mix of qualitative and quantitative, yeah. and and if it's too qualitative, that means it's it's still too a little too loose, it's still a little too undefined, and if it's too quantitative, then you're actually not like you're actually talking to customers and users because you're probably looking more at analytics of use and you might be missing the the gooey parts in between you know the those those metrics and those analytics to really understand the story that's being told inside of of the quantitative piece so when you think about quantitative and qualitative around making product decisions how do you how do you think about balancing those and how do you see customers thinking about balancing those yeah i think this this is a you know, just like product, it's it's fluid. This this answer really depends on where you're at as a company. Uh, how much data do you have? If your sample size of, of customers is five, I'm not going to go spend a bunch of time building quantitative analytics in my product to make a uh, you know did the did the user get through this flow properly? I can I can talk with them. I can listen. And so I think as and this goes back to what I was saying. I think if if you really understand what your business is is optimizing for or what the core objectives are as as a business, and this is where I think great product leaders set these is if your team can understand what those objectives are, what you're optimizing for, they can then build product and, and make those prioritization decisions based on those. And and so for Aware, being year two of our early stage startup, we are optimizing for immediate sales, right? So that helps us, okay, if we're optimizing for sales, you know, how much qualitative versus quantitative, you know, feedback are we going to take into account for each of those things? And so, you know, our product team is constantly right now asking ourselves, is this feature going to lead to more sales or not? Is this optimization going to be, lead to more sales? And it's, it's by nature, you want to make things better. You get feedback, you want to implement that feedback. But I think you have to stay disciplined at, at an early stage startup. Um, there's a reason why so many startups fail is because they focus their time and attention on too many little things that don't move the needle for what the business is trying to do that, that quarter, that half, that year. And so, you know, in, in this year of AWARE, we're optimizing for, for immediate sales. Um, obviously, we're concerned about customer churn, but maybe in the next year, hypothetically in 2020, uh, that might be the year we we go in and optimize. We've found product market fit in 2019, and we have our full platform. We have the foundation set, and now we're worried about that light fixture in the bathroom, right? You know, if you think about a developer and they're developing a house, they're not gonna. Well, we have the frame up, but we're gonna go spend time on on the um, you know the, the faucet or the farmhouse sink before we have walls up. So it's just it's knowing what order you're doing it in, knowing what you're optimizing for as a company. And then, and then making your product decisions off of that. How do you think the, your your approach to product and your product team will evolve as the company evolves and matures, and, and as the product evolves and matures? Yeah, that's uh, a great question, and, and one we are actively kind of asking ourselves and, and planning for right now as as we look to do a Series B here at the end of the year. Is you know what do we want to throw? the gas on, uh, more or less, what fires do we want to throw the gas on? And, and I think as, as we have a portfolio now of, of products, I could justify, you know, multiple product managers for, for our por- portfolio We're we're getting into different geographical areas, right? And, and we're also looking to expand on integration, Slack, G Suite, uh, WebEx teams, and, and beyond. The list goes on. There's a lot of things to focus on. And so I think if we start to really understand uh, the, the company objectives, we can start to understand our, our products and our initiatives and build product teams around that. But we, we have a very open, transparent culture. We have a very nimble and, and lean team that is going to expand and try to keep those same tendencies so that we can continue to ship product, continue to validate these assumptions, and really and really build product in, in a rapid pace um, while providing value back to our to our large enterprise customers. Yeah, I think sometimes, especially at the stage we're aware is, sometimes it's easier to scale. The product is easier to scale than product teams and, and the team, right? Because 
the way that the products now get built and architected, they're fundamentally pretty mm-hmm. scalable from the built the beginning, right? If they if they're in the cloud and they run the web, you know, um, you can handle a lot of users and, and a lot of concurrency from the outset. And I think it becomes harder to think about how you scale the team mm-hmm. then than about how you actually scale the products. Yep. We used to be really concerned about how we scale products and not so not so concerned about how we scale the teams mm-hmm. managing and working on the products. And I think it's now flipped, right? Absolutely. Where scaling the team becomes the challenge. Yeah. And and I think keeping keeping north stars for each team is, is so critical, right? Uh, and this goes back to understanding the why. Getting to that why and making sure the teams, each team understands, uh, you know, why they're building what they're building. And I think, you know, that will be a challenge. I think scaling a company in general, you know, despite whatever you're building, to your point, product becomes the easy part. Scaling the team and, and staying on the same page will, will become the challenge in itself. So it's, it's something we're, we're um, actively doing right now and, and setting ourselves up for and, and really focusing you know, the product teams on, on the stakeholders themselves, right? Less, less about the product, but more about who are they solving problems for so that they can become obsessed with that and not so much our product features. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, it's a healthy culture to build from a product perspective, no matter if you're in B2B or B2C, is, is staying obsessed with that problem, understanding it, because the problems are ever-changing, right? The industry is changing. We're in an emerging market. And staying on top of that versus in our siloed um, kind of tunnel vision uh, that is easy to get into and stay in. I mean, that's why we continue to talk with customers on a regular basis, just to pick up these, these little gold nuggets is what I call them. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a, a good summary and a, and a good exit point always comes back to the problem mm-hmm. and understanding the problem and then providing value right around the problem, less about feature functionality and, and, you know, the, the actual footprint of the product than our customers getting value out of it because the, the functional footprint, you know, that stuff can get resolved, but they have to be, they, ha- it has to be solving a problem they care enough about and it has to be doing it in a way that they value enough to, to keep using it. Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, uh, you're not always going to build the right thing, but but you're going to be making the, the best decision with the information you have at the moment. I think at a startup, that's why it's it's critical to build and push product as quickly as you can. You know, again, always validating assumptions, and, and really you're pushing quickly to learn and gain more information so that you can continue to make the best decision with more information. So obviously, just certain decisions require different amounts of time and energy based on, on the risk associated with it or the, or the consequences if it does go wrong, but you're always balancing those things. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting time, exciting market that we are in, uh, and, and exciting that, that our company is rapidly growing, as scary as it is. Right. Well, and you guys are, <laughs> as you talked about, you guys are are building product and working with some of the largest companies in the world, so that is you know probably equally rewarding and gratifying as it is you know intimidating and scary at some moments. Yeah, I can and I can tell you, and it's been happening more, which is a great thing. Our product team celebrates when when we hear from a customer, whether it's to a sales rep or to our customer success, that you know your product is by far the best in breed in this, or we we tested fifteen other products and. And yours is the only one that is bring, being brought to you know the, the decision makers to be uh, to be bought or not. So those are I think for us when we hear those things, that's when we celebrate. Really, not not so much when we push product features, but when they're actually validated by the market, by the people that we're solving problems for. That that you know are by the people that are essentially you know paying us money to build the product for. So that's the culture we're building at Aware, and and you know we have a lot lot to, a lot left to do. <laughs> No shortage of challenges uh, to be found out of where. Yeah, that's that's the good and bad thing about being in the uh, software product biz is there's never a finish line. No. Right? And, and which is for people that are unfamiliar with the, the space and, and as we as a product firm build products for clients, um, it's one of the conversations, the hard conversations that we have with clients who maybe don't build software mm-hmm. products every day, right? Manufacturing companies, insurance companies, you know, nonprofits, etc. What they are, and they don't necessarily um, build, you know, software products every day. And one of the conversations that we have with them frequently is, you should know that if you head down this path, you not, are now the forever owner of a software product yes. until the day you until, until the day that you kill it. But otherwise, 
you're never going to be happy where it is. Mm-hmm. There's never a finish line. Mm-hmm. And so you are the owner of this thing in perpetuity and all that ownership means of a software product. Yes. And um, many who are unindoctrinated don't re- – they shake their head, right? And they say, yeah, we get it. We understand. They don't really get it. They don't really understand. Yep. Because the only way to sort of know is to have done it and have lived it and, and to live with the – with the discomfort of it's never as good as you want it to yep. be, and you're never done. Well, I think I think this is where um, companies are starting to take focus on actually having a product division, right? A, a product uh, unit where this product division within a company starts to become that that balance, so that you aren't just building every shiny object, and and you're not just building to build because it's a good idea, or because the sales team heard it in in a in a meeting. You know, I think to kind of going back to what you're saying, it's never done. And if you build it, you're going to have to maintain it. The the analogy I use, which is somewhat laughable, now you you can't kill this, but it's like having kids, right? Every new feature is is a new child that you are now supporting. And so I think it's 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 up to product to say no more than they say yes. And and I've seen it before where product hasn't been really at the forefront of a, of a business where sales gets anything they want built, and then it becomes now you have. 20 features and you still just have one team maintaining those features and and I, you know I've been guilty of it I think it's it's easy to to go after shiny objects but that's really where a well disciplined product team can really help a company stay focused and and really you know maintain a, a true true valuable product yeah because as you were saying earlier you have to optimize the product for sales but if sales is the product driver then you could end up in in this morass, right? Of of having lots of one offs because sales got you know sort of was allowed free reign yeah. to offer custom solutions and and other things you know to to prospect. And I and I've seen this over 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 time where companies, even sometimes big companies, right, end up going out of business because sales got to drive mm-hmm. the product roadmap yeah. too much. And they were allowed to, you know, to essentially write custom deals for clients. And then if you get to the point where you've got too many of those individual customized implementations out in the field, it's untenable. And then you can't provide good service to those customers around those those customized implementations. And then the whole thing ends up becoming this sort of house of cards that just eventually will fall apart. And and that's on product to own. You know, I think, you know, it's it's easy to point fingers across divisions. It's easy to point, well, that's that's sales, but they're doing their job. Right, but that's why you have a product division is to push back on that. They're, the signals that come from sales are some of the most important signals, but you need to have a good product division to filter those those signals and to say no to the things that that don't make sense for the long term and and you know to the things that might cause distraction for some high, you know more higher or higher initiatives at the company. That if you do this shiny object or this quick win or this custom one off you're saying no to something that is actually supporting the rest of your customers. So it's always trade-offs, but that's, that's why a, a solid uh, and respected product division within a company is, is so critical, um, especially in, in B2B. Yeah, makes total sense. Matt, thank you very much for, for joining. Great Absolutely. conversation. Absolutely. This is Ryan Frederick from AWH. This has been Beyond the Roadmap. See you next time. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.